Last week, we concluded our survey of the four views of creation which are held among Christians by looking at the fourth and final view, a view that is called historical creationism or covenantal creationism. In his book, Genesis Unbound, Dr. John Sailhammer argues that the church's understanding of Genesis 1 has for centuries been bound by erroneous translations of the Hebrew text and faulty assumptions which come more from Greek philosophy than from the text of the Bible itself. Sailhammer argues that his view is actually the more historic view, hence the name, representing the way that the ancient Hebrews, for whom it was first written, would have understood the text of Genesis when they first heard it. Sailhammer finds support for his view from ancient and medieval Jewish commentators as well from, as from the unfolding storyline of Scripture itself. Basically, historical creationism holds that the six days of Genesis 1 do not refer to the creation of the entire cosmos, but rather to the preparation, more specifically, of the covenant land for God's covenant people. Sailhammer believes that Genesis 1.1 simply states that God created the heavens and the earth, which equals the entire cosmos, all things that exist everywhere in the beginning. All things were created in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, and that Moses says nothing about the timing or the process which God used in the creation of all things. We know from Genesis 11.3, for example, that it was the Word of God by which God created the heavens and the earth, and that what is made was not made from things which are visible, but from things which are invisible. God spoke creation into existence, and that's covered in Genesis 1.1. Then, Genesis 1-2, all the way to the end of the seven days, Genesis 2-3, describes God's work of preparing the Garden of Eden, which Sailhammer equates to the Promised Land. So Genesis 1-1 has an entire cosmos in view, and the seven days have more specifically the covenant land in view. And that what God was doing during these six days and then resting on the seventh was making into a paradise suitable for His covenant people this land which prior to that was an uninhabitable wilderness. This interpretation is supported by four major points. Number one, the Hebrew term reshit or beginning always refers to a period of indeterminate duration, an extended period of indeterminate duration. It never refers to a, an instantaneous specific moment in time. Number two, in the Pentateuch, those are the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the Pentateuch, especially the Hebrew term Eretz, which is translated as earth or land, most often has a specific localized sense. Okay? Usually in the books of Moses, referring specifically to the land that was promised to Abraham. Number three. The Hebrew phrase tohu v'bohu does not mean formless and void as it is translated in most English, if not all English translations, and has been translated since the Septuagint. It does not refer to a primordial chaos, as we talked about in our connect group, a swirling mass of gaseous elements. That was the Greek conception. But it refers rather to an uninhabited wasteland, which is unsuitable for God's covenant people to dwell in, which is the very same way that the very same phrase is used in Jeremiah 4, 23 to 26. And number four, the location, the purpose, and the covenant of the Garden Eden of Eden reveal that Eden is to be equated with the promised land. And that the garden in Eden is to be equated with the temple where the people of God fellowship with, commune with, and worship their Lord. In other words, Adam, not Abraham, was the first to dwell in Zion. 
in the beautiful land, in a covenant relationship with God. That was the basis of last week's message. It's on our website. If you missed it, I would invite you to go back and to give it a listen through so that you can hear the defense of those four points. Now, I'm not 100% certain that Sailhammer is right. But I find his view to be incredibly intriguing and quite compelling. Not only do I believe that it makes the, the best sense of the concentric circles of Scripture, right? It makes, it makes the best contextual sense of what Moses is doing in Genesis 1-3 to and what he's doing in Genesis 1-11 to and what he's doing in the Pentateuch as a whole and what the whole of the Scriptures seem intent on showing us that all of Scripture is about a, a covenant God bringing a covenant people into a covenant land to enjoy his covenant blessing. All of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, bears that underlying storyline. But I also think as we shall see, that historical or covenantal creationism resolves a number of tensions that six-day creationism, for example, has with the astronomical, geological, and fossil record. So for these reasons and more, I think, you may disagree and that's okay, but I think that Sailhammer's view is worth a listen at the very least and deserves our serious consideration. It's likely that as many of you were listening last week as I presented this view, kind of an overview of historical creationism, um, particularly from Genesis 1-1, that your eyes scanned down the page and you looked at the remainder of Genesis 1 and a number of questions arose in your head. That's good. And what I hope to do this morning as we proceed through the rest of the chapter is to answer those questions. So my aim this morning is to walk through the seven days of Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 from the historical creationist perspective. I want to tell you why I'm doing that. I'm not doing it because I'm 100% sure that it's the right one. I'm, I'm very comfortable in that view, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm not going to stand before you and say, thus saith the Lord, this is the way that Genesis 1 is to be understood. But I'm doing it because we've already walked through Genesis 1 from the progressive creationist perspective. And the vast majority of you are familiar with the way that six-day creationism handles Genesis 1. It's just a very literal, straightforward reading of the text. So I want to take covenantal creationism, historical creationism, and walk through Genesis 1 to, get you an, to give you an idea of how that works with the six days of what I'm going to call preparation. The six days of preparation of the covenant land. By the end of today, you should have a pretty good understanding of the way that progressive creationism handles Genesis 1, the way six-day creationism handles Genesis 1, and the way historical creationism handles Genesis 1. And then I, I'm going to invite you, like I have at, at the end of every other sermon in Genesis, to be Bereans, to take what I've taught you, examine it by the Scriptures, and see whether these things be so. What, what my challenge to you is, is to listen, hear, think through it, and then step back and look at the last five weeks as a whole and prayerfully determine which view you think is the most faithful to the biblical text. Because that's our concern. The Bible is our sole and sufficient rule of faith and practice. And if, if a view that we hold is not, is not in accordance with this word, then, then it ought to be rejected out of hand. So step back with the last five weeks and say, now... Which view makes the most sense, is the most faithful to the biblical text, and then take your stand upon it, no matter what. We'll begin with verse 1. Even though we covered verse 1 last week, this is where we must begin, in the beginning. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes three fundamental assertions in this first verse, and I don't want to blow past it without highlighting them. First and foremost, he asserts that God, okay, now who are we talking about? Put yourself in the position of the first Hebrews, 1445 BC, 
on the plains of Moab overlooking the promised land. Put yourself in their position. Who's the God who created the heavens and the earth? Well, it's the God of the covenant. It's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we know him to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the creator of all things. Now the rest of the Bible will fill out the character and the nature of this God who is creator. But before all else, he is revealed to us as the creator. The Lord alone is God and he has no rivals to his throne. Listen to how the prophets applied these truths to their hearers. Jeremiah chapter 10. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Thus you shall say to them, to the people of Israel, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding, stretched out the heavens. The psalmist in Psalm 95 verse 6 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, Jehovah, made the heavens. In other words, for the prophets of Israel, the prophets of the Old Testament, to be the creator is to be God, having no equal and no rival. And according to God himself, in his response to Job's complaint about the injustice of God treating him in the way that he did, To be creator gives him the sovereign right to treat his creation and deal with his creation as he sees fit. So at the end of Job, Job finally demands of God an answer for the things that have happened to him. And the Lord responds. Job 38 and verse 4. He says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding." Who who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Alright, so this, this is the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. It is the cornerstone of our entire worldview. And it is established from the very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Second thing Moses asserts is that God created in the beginning all things that exist. Now as I showed you last week, the Hebrew phrase translated the heavens and the earth is a figure of speech used in Hebrew literature known as a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. In a merism... The authors take two extreme ideas and link them together in order to speak of everything in between, the totality of the whole. For instance, Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you've searched my heart, you know my ways, you you know when I lie down, and you know when I rise up. Now, he means more than to say, you know the moment I fell asleep and the moment that I wake up. He means you know everything in between. See, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for universe. There is no word for cosmos. There is no word for everything out there. And so the way that they spoke of what we would call the cosmos or the universe is with this specialized phrase, the heavens and the earth. The heavens, the earth, and everything encompassed by them. That's what God created in the beginning in Genesis 1 one. In other words, according to Moses, there is nothing, nothing in the billions upon billions of light years of the universe which God did not actively and purposely create by his will and by his word. And it cannot refer to a primordial chaos, a formless and void earth. Salehammer writes, quote, If we are to understand this expression, the heavens and the earth, in the same sense it has throughout Scripture, then it must refer to the whole of the universe as we know it today. 
It includes not only the earth, but the sun, moon, and stars. It also includes all that we see around us, plants, animals, rocks, rivers, mountains, you name it. In fact, human beings are the only creatures accepted from the creation that took place in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. Because of the, the, the way their special creation is described in Genesis 1 and 2, the fact that they were created after the garden had been prepared, and Genesis 5, the genealogy of Genesis 5 shows us that all people descended from this first man and first woman Adam and Eve, but outside of Adam and Eve, everything else was created. Everything in the heavens and the earth, in, in the entire cosmos, was created in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. Finally, God created all things in the beginning. And as we saw last week, the Hebrew term reshit always refers to an extended period of indeterminate duration and never to an instantaneous moment in time. Let me read you one more quote from Sailhammer's book. The length of that period of creation is not specified. It could have been as long as billions of years or as short as a few days or years. Given what appears to be true about the age of the earth, it seems likely that millions or billions of years transpired during this time of the beginning. When my children ask me where dinosaurs fit into the biblical account of creation, I tell them that they were created, lived, and became extinct during the beginning. Did you get that? I've been getting those questions as well. When my children ask me where the dinosaurs fit into the biblical account of creation, he tells them they were created, they lived, and they became extinct in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. According to Sailhammer then, in just seven Hebrew words, Moses establishes the biblical doctrine of creation and covers, if we're going to take NASA's estimate, it may be right, it may be wrong, and covers about 13.8 billion years of cosmological history up to around 10,000 years ago, which is where verse 2 picks up. There's no gap. This is not a gap theory. There's a continuous creation. There's just a whole lot of time covered in Genesis 1.1. And Genesis 1.2 picks up about 10, 12, some estimates go as high as 30,000 years ago depending on whether there are gaps and how many gaps there are in the genealogies of Genesis 5. All right, verse 2. The earth, that is the land, was without form and void. Now, how do we translate that? Well, it was an uninhabitable wilderness. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. At a time foreordained and decreed by God from all eternity, God looked down upon this uninhabitable wasteland, which was to become the first home of Adam and Eve, the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seat of David's kingdom, the hope of exiled Israel, the birthplace of the Messiah, the scene of the Redeemer's death and resurrection and ascension, the site, if I understand the prophets right, of Christ's return, the place of his eternal throne, and the eternal dwelling place of the saints. But it was not yet suitable to be any of those things. It was an uninhabitable wilderness. It was not yet, and here's the Hebrew word that's used throughout Genesis 1, it was not yet good. Tob. And so God began to prepare a covenant land for his covenant people. Your Bible is going to use two different words in Genesis chapter 1. It's going to use the Hebrew word bara, 
which means to create out of nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. And it's going to use the Hebrew word asah, which means to make or to prepare. And if you're not careful, you will think that make and create are the same word, and they're not. Bara, create, means to create out of nothing. Asah, prepare, means to form into something useful. The way we utilize the word to make a bed. It means to prepare a disordered bed and to make it orderly and ready for somebody to sleep in. That's the word that is used almost entirely throughout Genesis 1. God is preparing, ordering, forming for the covenant people to use a covenant land. God in Genesis 1-2 is about to make an uninhabitable wilderness into a garden paradise. According to Salehammer, quote, there is darkness over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2 because it is nighttime when God first begins to speak. This was not the first night and day in God's universe. Just as there were many rainbows before God made one and put it in the clouds after the flood, so there were many nights before this one which began the week of events, end quote. Let me tell you how I imagine Genesis 1-2 playing out. I imagine verse 2 referring to the pre-dawn darkness over the Mediterranean Sea. I think that's the deep. To the west of the land. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the Mediterranean, the face of the deep, the face of the waters in anticipation, awaiting the dawn which is about to rise in the east, waiting for this week of preparation to begin, which would culminate in the creation of man and the inauguration of the great story of redemption. There's so much anticipation bound up in verse 2. The Spirit of God is hovering. What's He doing? He's waiting, almost like He can't stand it, that it's getting ready to start. And God then calls forth the sun from the east. He calls forth the sunrise, and it comes Forth and it bathes the land that God is about to prepare in glorious light. And God saw the light and he saw that it was good. Thus, God began to prepare the land by ordering it according to set times. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, for whom does he have to name the night and the day? He doesn't, he doesn't need names assigned to it. He's assigning this, this rotation of night and day for the people that he's going to create. There was evening and there was morning the first day. The first day of what? The first day of creation? Well, not according to Sailhammer. There had been innumerable days in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. Ever since the earth began to rotate on its axis with respect to the sun, there had been nights and there had been days. Remember that the sun, moon, stars, and earth were all included in the heavens and the earth, the all things that God created in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. But this day was different. This was the first day, not of creation, but the first day of a new unit of time. A unit of time that has nothing whatsoever to do with natural phenomena. It has nothing to do with the orbit of the earth around the sun, a unit of time we know of as the year. It has nothing to do with the orbit of the moon around the earth, a unit of time we know of as a month. And it has nothing to do with the rotation of the earth with respect to the sun, a unit of time that we know of as the day. This was the first day of something called a week. A unit of time that has no reference to anything in heaven or upon the earth. No other creature in all creation operates with the week as a standard measurement. Only man. Why? 
because God ordained it to be so. And this was the first day of the first week in the history of time. All other units, the year, the month, the day, those are natural units of time. But the week is a divine unit of time. It is a unit of time, a divine unit of measurement designed to regulate the rhythm of work and worship for the covenant people. That's the way it's used in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. So on the first day of the first week in the history of the world, God prepared not only to pre- God began not only to prepare a land for his covenant people, he began to prepare a life by establishing this rhythm of work and worship day and night. Day 2. Skies and clouds. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Two interpretive issues in this day two. The first is the meaning of the word expanse. Hebrew word is rakia. What does that mean? Does it refer, here's the question, does it refer to the sky within earth's atmosphere? That realm where the birds fly? That's clearly the way that the word is used in verse 20. Or does it refer to The heavens, in other words, that whole realm out of the earth's atmosphere, outer space, the realm of the sun, moon, and stars, which is the way the same word is used in verse 15. Which one is it? Is it the the realm where the birds fly, or is it the realm where the stars and the moon and the sun exist? Well, from the perspective of the ancient Hebrew, with no understanding of the earth's atmosphere or, or of outer space beyond, it didn't matter. Expanse equally referred to both. It was all up to them. Up. But it matters to us. And in general, it is better to take expanse, rakia, to mean the expanse under, within the earth's atmosphere. It's the realm where the birds fly. And more importantly, it's the realm where the clouds float. And it's probably better translated as sky. So if you intend to produce a new translation of Genesis 1, you should translate that word sky. The second major interpretive problem is the meaning of the waters above, okay? So so now we know what the expanse is. It's the skies. So, So what are the waters above the skies? This expanse, Genesis says, separated the waters below from the waters above. Okay, so the waters below are the waters still covering the land. We'll get to that in in day three. But what are these waters above the land, above the expanse? Six-day creationists contend that this refers to a primeval, pre-flood water or vapor canopy which encircled the earth's outermost atmosphere and then was disrupted by the the cosmic or volcanic disturbance, and the water then fell to the earth, initiating the great flood. But I want to humbly submit to you that 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 cannot be the case. The, The phrase, the waters above the expanse, or the waters above the heavens, cannot refer, cannot refer to a water canopy. Namely, because according to Psalm 148, it's still there. It's still there. Psalm 148, verse 4. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. So not only are the waters above the, above the expanse still there, but according to the psalmist, God has ordained and commanded that they be there forever and ever. They didn't just fall to the ground at the beginning of the flood. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. So I submit to you that it's best to take the waters above in Genesis 1 as a reference to clouds. 
which hold the water that falls to the earth as rain. This is the way that it's used in Psalm 147 in verse 8. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. So on the second day, God continued to prepare the land for his covenant people by calling forth rain clouds to fill the skies over the land. Clouds which would then water the earth regularly and prepare the land for the vegetation to be created on day three. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. In the Hebrew language, any body of water, regardless of its size, is called a sea. Now again, the Hebrews, 1445 B.C., You're a part of the ancient Hebrews who are first receiving the book of Genesis. You have absolutely no conception or knowledge of the vast oceans that cover 70% of the earth. You don't know anything about the Pacific Ocean. You don't know anything about the Atlantic Ocean. You don't know anything about the Indian Ocean. You know of four seas tops in existence on the face of the earth. So when you hear the word seas, you're not thinking of global bodies of water. You're thinking of, number one, the Red Sea, through which you passed on your way to the Promised Land. Number two, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, which borders the the Promised Land on the west. You're thinking of the Sea of Kinneret. We know it as the Sea of Galilee, which was in the northern portion of the Promised Land. And you know of the Dead Sea, which in Genesis 1 was not yet dead. It doesn't become salinated and devoid of life until the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the valley in Genesis 19. That's it. So when you hear seas, that's what you're thinking of. And these seas were the seas that God gathered together, revealing the land, the very seas that God would cause to teem with life for the benefit of the people that he would soon create. I don't know how this came about. But I imagine God raising up the land from the midst of the seas and that land becoming Eden, becoming the promised land, shifting tectonic plates, buckling, creating mountains, which is why the promised land is so mountainous. And in their their place, these bodies of water were given borders, the Sea of Galilee to the north, the, the Great Sea to the west, the Dead Sea to the south, and the Red Sea that divided the Arabian Peninsula from Egypt. God then called forth vegetation upon the land, specifically plants yielding seed and fruit trees. I want you to look at those two phrases, and it's important, because in verse 29, God tells the man and the woman whom he created I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, the land, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. In other words, on day three, God creates food for the man and the woman whom he will create on day six. Everything in these six days of creation is pointing towards the preparation of the covenant land for the covenant people. Day three, he prepares a land for them. And he prepares food for them to grow out of the land. Food, which by the way, will be watered by the clouds that he put in the air on day two. Day four, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day four is, without a doubt, the most difficult day to interpret, no matter what view of creation you hold. If you believe that God created the sun, moon, and stars on day four, right, they didn't exist before day four, and now they exist, then you've got to deal with some problems, like, what is the source of light that God creates in day one? Or, what is holding the earth in its orbit? Because you have to have, according to laws of physics anyway, some, some giant mass that creates the gravitational pull that keeps the earth circling and keeps it from coming too close or from flying off into space. Or, how was there evening and morning on days one, two, and three if there was no sun for the earth to rotate on its axis with respect to? Or, if the sun, moon, and stars weren't created until day four, then what exactly did God create when he created the heavens in day one? Space isn't anything. It's nothing. It's what's in space that creates or forms or composes the heavens. So every view of creation must account for the strange placing of the events of day four. How you deal with that is another matter. Sailhammer insists that the sun, moon, and the stars were created in the beginning, as with everything else in Genesis 1. Furthermore, he insists that most English translations get verse 14 wrong. In other words, instead of reading, this is what my Bible says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, which sounds as if prior to day four, there was no lights in the expanse of the heavens, and then God made the lights in the expanse of the heavens in day four. The Hebrew text actually says, let the lights in the expanse be for separating the day and the night which assumes that the lights already exist and what God is doing in day four is assigning to them a purpose with respect to man. God is assigning the sun and the moon and the stars a purpose in relation to the covenant people for whom he is preparing the covenant land. They are to serve, according to the text, as signs to mark days, years, and the turning of the seasons. Why might those be important for man? Days mark the weeks, years mark the sabbatical periods, and seasons mark the feasts and the cycle of sowing and reaping. God is preparing, remember, not only a land in Genesis 1, he's preparing a life for his covenant people. So how are we to understand verses 16 and 18? Well, you'll notice that at the end of verse 15, there's that concluding statement, and it was so. You can walk through Genesis 1 and you'll see that that phrase always marks the author's end of his description of events and the beginning of his comment on those events. You can see this in verse 7, 9, 11, 15, 24, and 30. In other words, verses 14 and 15 explain what God said or did, and verses 16 to 18 provide the significance of what God said or did. Verses 14 and 15 explain that God created the sun, moon, and stars, but it doesn't say when God created them. The when is in the beginning in Genesis 1.1, and then the following states why he created them. He created them to mark days and years and signs and seasons. So what exactly did God do on the fourth day? On the fourth day, he established the celestial calendar by which man would mark time, plant crops, know when to gather for worship. Once again, God is preparing both a land and a life for his people. Day 5, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply upon the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. All right, so on the fifth day, God continues to prepare the land by filling the waters with swarms of living creatures and the skies with all kinds of birds. Question is, did God create these animals on day five? Had they not existed before? Were they not created in the beginning with everything else? Sailhammer answers this by pointing back to day four. He, he says, God did not create the sun, moon, and stars on day four. They already existed. They were created in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. Rather, on day four, God assigned their significance with respect to man. When they were created is not in view in verses 14 to 19. Rather, those verses are concerned with why they were created. They were created for man. Well, similarly, it's not as though there were no creatures in the seas and there were no birds in the air prior to day five. Rather, the concern is once again with the covenant land and the covenant people. On this day, God filled the waters below that he's just separated a couple days prior and the skies above with all kinds of life. The activity of God on day five and the Hebrew terms that are used to describe it are strikingly similar to Exodus 8 and the second Egyptian plague. You remember that when God commanded the Nile River to swarm with frogs such that the entire land of Egypt was covered with them? I want you to ask yourself this question. Okay, the language is the same, so let's examine what he means in Exodus 8. Did God create out of nothing the frogs that came up out of the Nile? Well, I suppose it's possible, just like it's possible that God created anew and afresh birds according to their kinds and fish according to their kinds to fill the covenant land. But that's not the way that I imagine things happening in Exodus 8. Rather, it seems to me more probable that God commanded the frogs that already existed to come from all over Egypt and to swarm the Nile and the land of Egypt. I think that's also the sense of God's activity on day five. On this day, God filled the seas and the skies of the covenant land with life. Day six, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. I created them for you. That is on the face of all the earth, face of all the land and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Two major events transpire on the sixth day. The first is that God populates the land with all manner of creatures. Moses divides them into three categories. Those that can be domesticated, calls them livestock. Small creatures, reptiles, rodents, and such. Creeping things. And wild animals or game, beasts of the earth. And once again, we see the textual pattern that's been evident throughout Genesis 1. There's the command to fill the land, verse 24, with the animals created in the beginning. And let it be stated that there's no room in this text anywhere there's no room for an evolutionary view of the origin of animal life. The text of Genesis is clear that God made the animals after their kind. 
meaning that he directly created animal species, directly, personally, actively, intentionally created animal species after their kind, all right? Kind, the Hebrew word is min. It probably refers not to what we would call as species, but to the family or the genus in the modern taxonomy. You learn that somewhere in like ninth grade biology, right? Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? All right, so species isn't what we're dealing with when we deal with the Hebrew word men. We're dealing with somewhere between family and genus. In other words, God created canines, and it's clear that there was adaptable mutations within the canine family, within the canine genus, within the canine species, just as there are multiple types of I mean, numerous types of canines today. But there is no evidence anywhere, either in the fossil record or in the biblical text, that canines, that family or that genus, came from some other species or family or genus. God created canines. And God created all animals according to their kind. The second major event is the creation of man. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this point because that's going to be next week's message. We're going to zero in on the creation of man next week and explore what it means to be created in the image of God. For our purposes today, let me simply note that man is presented as the pinnacle, the goal of God's creative work. When God creates man, he's done. He's finished. Everything up to that point has been directed toward man's provision, man's blessing, Man's joy in the land that God prepared and created for him. When God had prepared the covenant land, in other words, he he created a covenant people to dwell in the land. And when God created the covenant people, day seven says that he rested from his labors in utter joy and satisfaction. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. By the end of the sixth day, God is finished. The covenant land is prepared. The covenant people are created. The story, this story is begun. The rhythm of work and worship is established on the seventh day. What, what did that seventh day look like? Well, we're not told. We're left only to speculate, but I suspect that it was a day of worship, a day of fellowship between God and his people, between a father and his children. It was a day of rest, and it was a day of joy. The scene, this whole Beautiful, peaceful, serene, perfect scene. It's soon going to grow darker, but for, for now, the narrative of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 ends in absolute perfection and peace between God and man. And as we saw in our study of Revelation, mankind, redeemed man, is destined to return to the peace and the joy of that seventh day. We will return one day to God's Sabbath rest. But it will take a very long detour for us to get there. A detour that will run through a cross. Throughout the first chapter of Genesis 1, there is a recurring phrase that highlights the chapter's central theme. Seven times in Genesis 1, Moses summarizes the Lord's work in preparing this land with some derivative of the phrase, and it was good. The last occurrence is after the creation of man and the woman who will dwell in the good land. There, verse 31, Moses says, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the central theme of Genesis 1. The Lord takes a land that is not good. It is an uninhabitable wilderness. And he transforms it into a good land. Now, I want you to skip ahead with me thousands of years. 
It's 1445 B.C. You're the people of Israel. You're standing on the plains of Moab. Moses is speaking to you before he's getting ready to go off and die. You are getting ready to go in and to take the land under the command of Joshua. And Moses says these words to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. In which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. That sounds to me like Eden, and I think it's supposed to. Moses says those words to you, and in 1445 B.C., to your Hebrew ears, you know God's getting ready to bring you back into the land. This is precisely the land which God was preparing throughout Genesis 1, a good land for his covenant people. And this good land is the same land that we, the new covenant people, will enjoy forever in the Lord's presence. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. God created a good land once. And he's going to create a good land again. And he's going to bring his covenant people. Those who belong to Christ by grace through faith. Back into the promised land. And we'll enjoy the Lord's good bounty and blessing. Forever. In ever increasing joy.